You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. Thank you so much for listening this Sunday morning. We are always the show of ideas, never once the show of attitude. Well, just when I thought I had everything figured out and I had views on what is going on in the world that I was totally comfortable with and had some confidence that I could reasonably understand what was going on and my positions, along come, along comes a new weapon to be used by the Western world against its, air quotes, enemy, end of air quotes, Russia, formerly USSR. The weapon, of course, is economic sanctions. Economic sanctions seem to be, at first blush, at least to me, a almost ideal weapon if those two words can even coexist side by side, but I will do so. Ideal weapon. Ideal because it doesn't kill people. Ideal because it doesn't uh, present a direct risk to American treasure or blood, indeed, treasure or blood of the Western world. And it seems to be working, but more about the word working as we get into our show. As I read more and more about sanctions, I began to wonder whether I was too hasty in my enthusiasm for sanctions as a weapon, if that's the appropriate word, and thought I would dig deeper, and sure enough, as I'm trying to learn about sanctions, up pops an article written by a dear friend of mine, a former guest on the show, Jonathan Bidlack. Uh, Jonathan uh, is the policy director uh, for governance, and he's a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Uh, He has followed government economic issues in particular for most of his adult life. Before joining R Street, he was with the Institute for Spending Reform, and he formed and headed up the Coalition to Reduce Spending. Who's not in favor of that before he joined the R Street Institute? Jonathan was kind enough to help in my learning by writing in the March 9th issue of The Spectator, Uh, an article entitled, Sanctions on Russia Will Shake the World Economy for Years. Well, when I read the title of that article, I couldn't really tell whether the article was simply, matter of fact, this is what's going to happen. I couldn't tell whether Jonathan, when I saw the title, was writing in support of, but with a warning, the use of sanctions, or whether he was opposed uh, to the use of sanctions for various philosophical and policy reasons. Rather than try to figure it out and read Jonathan's mind, the best way to figure it all out is to invite Jonathan to join us this morning, and that I have done. Jonathan, welcome to the show this morning. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate being on. Uh, Now, Jonathan, sanctions on Russia will shake the world economy for years. Is that simply a warning, or are you and do you take a position on whether the use of economic tools as a weapon— to harm or discourage enemies is a good idea. So tell us uh, the headline premise of your article, and then we will drill down. Sure. Uh, Yeah, so, you know, I think, I mean, look, if if you generally believe that free trade is a good thing, 
then you're probably going to believe that sanctions are a bad thing uh, because, you know, obviously sanctions are kind of the opposite, right? You're, you're making it more difficult for, for, you know, people in the private sector to, to trade and engage in economic transactions with one another. Now, you know, I say that point or I make that point from the standpoint of an economist, uh, not necessarily, you know, uh, someone who, who is concerned about, about international relations. And I think that the reasons whereby countries decide to impose sanctions uh, go well beyond the economic factors that we're discussing. And so, you know, personally, I mean, my feeling is that, generally speaking, the actions that we've taken uh, in response to the, uh, the Russia-Ukraine crisis uh, are, uh, are, are warranted. Uh, but that said, I think that, you know, it is important for us to think about what the impacts will be, not just on Russia in the short term, but also the United States. I mean, the simplest example is just look at gas prices, right, or the, the, the energy markets, for example, being roiled in the short term based on these actions that we've taken. Um, and then the other point of the article is that, you know, there are also long-term consequences uh, in that some of these things, you know, may be difficult to go and unwind uh, after the fact. And so even once, you know, we reach the point where, where you know, Russia decides to go and, and, and stop with the invasion, um, that doesn't mean that the economic situation is just going to be hunky-dory at that point in time. And so my, my main point in the article is to, is to say that, you know, policymakers need to be thinking about uh, not just, you know, the sort of the reasons for imposing sanctions on Russia today, but also what those what the impacts will be uh, on the United States tomorrow and, and as well as in, in the short term. Because, you know, at the end of the day, sanctions don't, uh, you know, don't stop at borders. It's not like we can just go and, uh, uh, you know, impose sanctions on Russia and assume that that's not going to have impacts on other businesses and individuals around the world. Now, uh, it, there's a bit of deja vu it a word I just met up, deja vuity, um, in what you just said, it sounds an awful lot like the debate I was having on my show or discussions over the past two years involving COVID, when we had a policy issue, the pandemic, we had a solution lockdowns and the like, no need to revisit that unpleasant experience. But, and we had economists, unfortunately quite marginalized, jumping up and down, persuasively complaining, wait a minute, cure versus illness, are we making matters worse? Don't forget the economic aspects and the like. The economists were drowned out mostly to the uh, long-term detriment of the world, certainly our country, the economists were drowned out uh, by the doctors and the epidemiologists and the public health officials. Is this, now, this time, the economists are, are they being drowned out yet again? And if so, are they being drowned out under the claim, for better or for worse, that yes, there will be economic consequences, but any other weapon used to discourage Russia's behavior in the Ukraine, any other weapon is worse. So have you reached the decision that yes, while there are adverse consequences to sanctions, just as there are profound adverse consequences to war. If we start with another country's bad behavior, there is no way to avoid some adverse consequences. And have you, have you concluded that these adverse consequences from sanctions are better, worse, or we don't know than adverse consequences from other weapons? Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are, these are great questions. You know, uh, I don't think that economists are being are being drowned out in the conversation any more than 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 usual, I suppose, um, because I think that one of the problems is that the conventional wisdom on sanctions uh, is that they work. 
And, you know, there's a substantial a body of literature that says that actually they're generally ineffective. Um, and, you know, and that I think that that, that idea has, has been out there in some of the public commentary. But historically, uh, sanctions have generally not worked. I mean, the, the last time, uh, you know, President Obama in 2014 imposed sanctions on Russia, uh, you know, during the Crimean crisis, and they were largely ineffective. And, and at that time, we also tried targeting them toward the oligarchs, for example, and, and they weren't successful. And I think that, you know, if you go back and you look at other examples, oftentimes the, the difficulty with sanctions is that, in a nutshell, they don't, they don't actually harm the people you're trying to harm. Uh, they end up going and, and you know, Know, harming the people who live in these countries that are, are in some sense, you know, uh, more innocent bystanders. And so um, I think that that's, that's a big part of the problem to begin with, is that the narrative around sanctions is a little bit skewed. And, you know, and you, you ask yourself, well, why is that the case? Well, I mean, if you think about what our options are, I mean, they basically fit into one of three buckets. It's either do nothing, it's engage militarily, or it's look for some sort of middle ground uh, in which, you know, sanctions basically fits into that final bucket. And so I think that, you know, the, the part of the reason we've gone that route is that, you know, on the one hand, we are appalled by what's happening in Ukraine, and rightfully so, and so we can't exactly go and sit on our hands. But at the same time, you know, we all know the difficulties that come from putting troops on the ground, uh, as our, you know, recent misadventures in Afghanistan and Iraq have, have showed us. And so I think that the American people obviously don't want to see that happen. And so then the question becomes, well, what can we do that's sort of in between? And, and sanctions tends to be that answer, regardless of whether or not, you know, they are proven effective. And, you know, I should also add one last point, which is that uh, you know, I do think that there is a little bit of a, a difficulty here, too, when we talk about sanctions, because, you know, what we're doing right now at this point in time is much more substantial than when we have imposed sanctions in the past. And so even though I said that, you know, by and large, you know, they have generally not been effective as a means of, of you know, changing the, the, the actions of, of, you know, rogue actors, if you will, um, I think that this time around, there's sort of an un, a little bit of an untested question here. I mean, we've never removed a country from, you know, SWIFT, for example, and so we don't necessarily know how those, you know, how that will work and 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 what the implications will be in the short and long term. And so, uh, but you know, we kind of find ourselves, I guess, in this middle bucket because of the fact that we don't want to commit troops, but we also don't want to do nothing. You mentioned earlier, um, and others have mentioned it as well, that one of the downsides of sanctions are that it harms the people. Uh, these are my, this is my summary of what you said. Um, if it's inaccurate, please correct me. But sanctions are a very blunt instrument, and they target the average Russian citizen who did nothing wrong. I guess the the folk, the people who did something wrong, are Russian military and political leadership, Putin and the like. Uh, and many others have expressed that opinion as well. That sanctions, as a blunt instrument, harm the wrong people. And. I found myself asking myself, and now, Jonathan, I'm going to expand the question to include you. Um, if sanctions hurt the wrong people, why are, why is the killing of soldiers hurting the right people? After all, they didn't, they didn't choose to be there. They were sent there under the threat of something terrible happening to them. Most of the soldiers don't want to be there. So in warfare, isn't almost everybody a victim except for the very handful of political leaders who caused it all to happen? So focus on this, it hurts the wrong people or a blunt instrument. I don't, I don't see any other choice but for innocent people to be harmed, it's unavoidable. And in this case, isn't it better to harm them economically, which might be considered to be short-term, rather than to harm them by killing them, which is kind of long-term? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a great point. I mean, there's no doubt that, that war in, in general is, the, is the, the worst possible outcome. And there are huge costs, of course, to war. Uh, first and foremost, the loss, the immediate loss of human life. And, and you know, on top of that, the just the, the incredible destruction that we're seeing to the country of Ukraine. So I agree with you 110%. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going to pick, you know, which one is the, the better, the better action, uh, I think that economic measures are are certainly the way to go in this instance. If you're not going to go and 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 you know do something more drastic, but uh, the, the the only thing I would add to that is that that doesn't necessarily mean that sanction it somehow makes sanctions or these economic you know these punitive economic measures um, you know more effective, right? That at the end of the day they are what they are, and the impacts that they have are the impacts that they have, and and you know if they don't if they don't have the kind of effect or the desired effect on, in this case, you know, the leadership in the Kremlin and Putin specifically, um, then they won't necessarily be effective. Uh, and so, you know, I think that generally speaking, I mean, when, you know, in the past, when we've decided to, to engage in warfare, uh, you know, it's been with the understanding. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, you know, after Pearl Harbor, for example, we obviously knew that engaging in World War II was going to result in the loss of life, not just of American soldiers, but also also those overseas. But you make that kind of determination in sort of a crude, you know, cost-benefit sense, I guess, that, that you know, the, the, the potential downside is, is outweighed by the, by the potential upside of taking that military action. Um, I think that in this case, I mean, you know, we are we are making similar kinds of calculations, and um, but you know, again, my my main point, the main point of my article is that you know we should we should go into it with our eyes wide open, and be very aware not just again of the harm that we're attempting to inflict on Russia and whether or not that will be effective, but also what the implications are for the rest of the world at this point in time, and. And the world that we will we will enter into when this conflict comes to an end. I mean, at some point, right, the the war in Ukraine is going to end, uh, and there's going to be some sort of peace deal, and the world is going to move on. And the question is, what is that world going to look like? Uh, and so, you know, what we what, what that world does look like will be impacted by again the measures that we are taking now. And so, uh, it's just important that policymakers not discount the, the the very real impacts that that these measures are ultimately going to have you mentioned in your article and you mentioned it earlier this morning that looking back at the very short history of economic sanctions um, specifically Crimea or the Crimean uh, crisis when we when Obama first experimented with the use of sanctions, and you commented quite right, quite correctly that they were, for the most part, ineffective. Weren't they ineffective because they were half-hearted? That we have learned, num- number one, we have learned how to do it better. Number two, we have more tools because the world is incrementally more economically interconnected now than it was before, so that makes sanctions more effective. And lastly, the sanctions at the time of the Crimean crisis uh, was for the most part the U.S. with a half-hearted buy-in by some of the Western world. These use of sanctions are much more universal than in the 14. So is it, um, have we learned simply how to do it better? And is it simply a more powerful weapon now than it was before? After all, bombs in World War II um, ultimately would have carried the day, but it would have taken a long time. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were the ultimate better bomb, if you want to use that phrase. I hate it, but just to make my point, but the war ended in months. So is this simply these sanctions when the world is doing it, the atom bomb, and it is proving to be, or it may prove to be, a very effective tool, meaning the history of sanctions is kind of irrelevant. We're just better at it now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think there's definitely a point to be made there. I think the question is not just, you know, are they more effective, but how much more effective? And that's what we don't know, right? I mean, we certainly know that the United States and, and indeed the whole Western world, uh, you know, is taking actions that they did not in 2014, or that they have not, in, in, you know, in, in prior instances when we've imposed sanctions. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that those sanctions are, are, you know, more effective in the sense of being targeted more effectively to, uh, you know, to leadership in the Kremlin, uh, although I think there's a strong case to be made that they, that they are. But, you know, of course, from the, from the standpoint of, of the economist, right, it's not, it's not just, you know, are they more effective? It's how much more effective are they and at what cost? Uh, and so, you know, that's the thing that, uh, you know, we're sort of, in a sense, seeing a natural experiment right now. I mean, you know, at this point in time, as we're speaking, the conflict is still going on. I mean, Putin is not pulling out troops. He's largely doubling down. Uh, and so, from that standpoint, uh, you know, they, as of yet, they have not been effective. Um, you know, and if the if the ultimate goal is to convince convince Russian leadership to to end the war, then it's kind of hard to say that they have been effective, as warranted as they may be, and and they may, of course, ultimately prove, uh, uh, you know, effective. We just don't know at this point in time. Um, the other point I'll make here is that. You know, um, it is a little bit different than the analogy about, you know, advances in, in, you know, military technology or things like that, because, again, some of these actions that we're taking may have long-term consequences. I mean, one of the one of the points that I make in the article is, you know, the the uh, you know eliminating uh, or cutting off Russia from from SWIFT, which is you know sort of this this important part of the the way that the world processes international uh, transactions. And you think about what that might mean for for other you know other countries. Well, you know. You got to believe, for example, that China might be looking at this and saying, "We really need an alternative to to SWIFT." Uh, and so, you know, you might end up in a situation whereby some of these tools that theoretically could be more effective or may prove more effective right now end up not being more effective uh, down the road because we may not have them at our disposal. And so, again, we may ultimately decide, policymakers may decide, that these actions are completely warranted, and I would, I would agree with them. But I think it's very important that we consider and think about and, and you know, come up to solutions to these potential long-term problems that will ultimately cut against the so-called you know, soft power uh, that the Western world is able to utilize in these kinds of situations. Economists have expressed some concern, and I think I can include you in that category, that uh, as you had just pointed out um, in, in several references to SWIFT, and for our audience, SWIFT is an acronym which describes the secure worldwide uh, system by which banks communicate and communicate means move currency elect or move value electronically around the world uh, securely and quickly it is the, it is the the lubricant that makes worldwide commerce uh, so relatively inexpensive and secure and it brings the world together and economists have expressed concern that if that becomes if that exposes autocratic countries to risk, uh, it may cause the company, countries, certain countries, to become less connected, to rely less upon foreign trade and more upon self-sufficiency. Russia has been trying to do that for years, mostly ineffectively, um, and it will discourage world trade, which is good for everybody. Uh, Jonathan, it's a foreign affairs question as much as an economics question, and therefore you're allowed to say, if you if you wish, um, that you haven't really reflected <laughs> upon that. But if you have, um, how much does that concern you that the discovery that foreign trade and dependency upon by one country on another country economically? will cause countries to be less willing to become reliance upon trade to the worldwide detriment of us all. 
I mean, I think it's a great it's a great point, right? And uh, you know, I mean, just a few days ago, three or four days ago, you know, Congress voted uh, on the president's suggestion to remove, you know, uh, uh, you know, n- normal trade status for uh, for Russia and for Belarus. And you know, this is an interesting question in that context because, you know, while again that may be warranted in the short term and theoretically can be, you know, reversed at the end of the war. Um, you have to ask yourself, you know, would we perhaps find ourselves in a situation where that becomes a more permanent, uh, uh, you know, economic reality, whereby the United States and Russia would would no longer be trading, or at least no, you know, not be trading in, in the same way that we are currently, or have been up to this point. Um, and again, you know, these are difficult questions because they involve differing, uh, you know, types of expertise, as you pointed out. I mean, you know, there are there are sort of uh, you know, international relations questions that are uh, obviously uh, first and foremost here, and in some cases, you know, trump the economic standpoint. Uh, all I can say is that from from sort of the standpoint of someone viewing this through an economic lens, um, you know, the preference, no doubt, is to have more trade um, and to have, have, you know, countries sort of being engaging in a diplomatic fashion. And, you know, I should also say that you know, historically, anyway, there is this argument both in the in the economic uh, realm, but also in the in the realm of economic uh, of international relations, that countries that trade together and interact with each other peacefully tend not to go to war with one another. Now, obviously, what we are seeing right now in in Ukraine, I think, is a uh, you know perhaps the exception that proves the rule in a sense. I mean, we've operated under this assumption that you know European countries were not going to go to war with one another because they were by and large, you know, unified in, in not just in the European Union, but it essentially had a very tight-knit uh, uh, trading network. Uh, and so, you know, perhaps, you know, the, the, the confidence with which we've, you know, operated uh, under that belief for a long time is no longer, no longer warranted, or at least not warranted to the degree that, it, you know, we've historically thought about it in that way. But, um, you know, these are, these are very difficult questions that we're going to have to continue to grapple with, and they're going to require input from people who are not just considering, you know, the international uh, sort of relations aspect of this, um, but also the very real economic realities that, again, are, are driven, uh, are, you know, our, our, um, our actions, you know, will end, we'll end up having. The United States uh, likes to take the position um, that it favors um, op- open trade borders, low tariffs, putting aside the Trump's uh, administration's experiment with heavy tariffs. But in general, I think it's part of our DNA to favor foreign trade. But yet, mm-hmm. let's remember, it was an important part of our economic and political foreign policy to become energy independent. Uh, There was a complaint we were dependent upon, remember the phrase, foreign oil, and that exposed us, and we felt vulnerable as a country to the extent that we were dependent upon other countries to supply us with this essential resource. So we became energy independent. That almost is a statement by U.S. policy that there is a exposure if you rely too much on foreign trade. We opted in regards to energy to not become dependent upon foreign trade, but to become independent. So it's almost as if uh, we acknowledge that there is a downside um, in the uh, security of a country to become too dependent upon others. Um, so just I just wanted to throw that out, Jonathan, just as an observation that we ourselves support hunkering down in certain regards, um, and we are not universally in favor of uh, dependent upon foreign trade, um, although foreign trade has made our life better, and that's because of the principle, Jonathan, that perhaps you can explain to us um, the somewhat recent, recently discovered, written about principle of comparative advantage um, and why foreign trade 
is so much better for all. The principle being that some countries can simply provide something cheaper than somebody else, and it's better to get it from somebody else cheaper than to manufacture yourself. A principle that Russia is struggling with today. So help us understand the effect of comparative advantage on the discussion of foreign trade and sanctions. Sure. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot to unpack here. I think the the example that I always like to use when talking about comparative advantages, you know, I'm I'm originally from Massachusetts, and you know, we don't grow oranges in in Massachusetts. Uh, why don't we? Well, because obviously it's a lot easier to have them grown in Florida. Uh, and so, you know, we sort of instinctively understand, uh, you know, at the intra-country level, that there's value in having different areas of of, of the country, uh, ex, you know. Uh, uh, specialize in those areas where they have, a, you know, have a, have an advantage, whether that's an absolute advantage or a comparative one. Uh, I think that sometimes when we talk about this in the international context, however, uh, that lesson is lost, and we forget about that. You know, that there may be value in, in you know, having Ukraine, for example, you know, grow grain uh, and uh, grow wheat, uh, and and having other places specialize in other things. Now. But, you know, the, the time where that you know, can break down a little bit, obviously, is in the context of some of these, uh, of, of, you know, armed, armed conflicts, whereby now you are potentially exposed to, uh, you know, not having uh, those particular uh, industries or, or raw materials uh, being produced within your, within your country's borders. Uh, and again, this is a, to go back to my last point, why we certainly need to think about the, uh, not just the economics, but also the, the potential. Uh, you know, strains or difficulties that we can have in situations where where very real uh, you know conflict arises. But I do have to say, you know, since you brought up the topic as well of, of energy independence, you know, I think one of the under under discussed uh, uh, you know impacts or observations to to be made from from what's happening in, in Ukraine is, um, you know, we as you pointed out, we basically had this conversation that we needed to be energy independent for you know all of these sort of what I would argue were by and large you know wrong-headed uh, uh, economic reasons, uh, and these are, this is an idea that's been bought into by by you know members of both parties, right? We have President Biden on the one hand standing up and saying, you know, we need to go and buy American and produce things domestically, uh, and you see this from Republicans, you know, sort of a more nationalistic oriented Republicans all the time. Um, but you know what's interesting is that the United States right now uh, is, by and large, energy independent. You know, unlike a decade ago, um, we are ultimately a net exporter of of energy, and it's not perfect because you know we don't exactly have the the full refining capacity to to you know refine all of the the Texas sweet crude, for example, but um, but by and large, you know, we are far more energy independent, and yet, if you look at what's happened to gas prices or the worldwide you know, price of oil, um, we've very much been exposed. Now, you know, those prices have since come down a little bit since the, the, the early days of the, of the war in, in Ukraine, but, you know, at the end of the day, we are in an interconnected world whereby prices are set globally. And so just because you know, we, are, we are energy independent, uh, doesn't mean that we are not exposed to economic uh, consequences from sort of the way that the world the world operates. And so, uh, you know, unless you're basically going to propose some sort of you know autarky and and you know and closing borders and producing everything domestically uh, to be prepared for these kinds of situations, which of course would carry huge. Uh, economic uh, consequences for for any country uh, for the reasons we already discussed about the value of trade, um, then there's always going to be some level of of exposure to these potential harms. And I think that you know I'm I'm, I'm actually working on an on an op-ed about this topic right now. That that you know this whole idea that energy independence is somehow this gold standard thing that we should all be all be searching for. I mean, there may be some value, um, but let's not kid ourselves and say that, that you know, this is going to solve all of our problems when these worldwide conflicts come up, because they certainly haven't in this point in time, and we're not even engaged, uh, you know, militarily like we have been in other conflicts. So it's a, I, I think, do you think it's an, interesting, it's an interesting point, and it's an interesting lesson to be learned? Uh, you use the phrase um, that the world is interconnected. Um, and I would say, of course, that's true. We are 
reliant upon foreign trade um, to keep prices down. Certain goods and services are better man created by cheap foreign labor. That's a phrase that's often and should be hyphenated, cheap foreign labor, uh, uh, which means people around the world are willing to work for less money to give us what we want uh, at the price we are willing to pay. Uh, I think the phrase, uh, the world being economically interconnected, maybe does require, and I invite it, a bit of drilling down. We are, we are interconnected economically, but only because we want everything we possibly could have in the whole world at a price we're willing to pay for it. I don't think survival requires interconnectedness, but rather the quality of life we all aspire to have requires it. So it's not like oxygen and water and sunlight, which is essential. It just makes life infinitely better. And an interconnected world economically simply makes everything better and cheaper, but it's not essential for survival. And I think as, the, as Russia starts to experience, you mentioned uh, sanctions are not working. They're not working the way the lockdowns during COVID, again, lots of parallels, in the initial stages of the lockdown, the shelves became more plentiful. It was harder to get commodities that we wanted from breakfast cereal to toilet paper and the like. And there started to be, at first, an inconvenience, a new experience, but ultimately, and this I think has been underreported, uh, is that the growing pressure on Americans as they started to, it got a little tiresome, to say the least, to not have what we're used to, and that created the pressure to cause government to reverse the lockdown faster than perhaps autocratic state and local governments would otherwise have done so. My point being that I think the sanctions in Russia will have an effect because ultimately it must have an effect. Too many people will not stand for it and there's no way for the Russian government to put the blame anywhere else and the pressure will grow from within. So when you say the sanctions haven't been working, I would say I would change your period to a comma and add yet. Um, are you, do you believe, uh, and this is probably as much a political question as an economics one, but do you believe, and I'll lead you to the answer, that I'm hoping you would give, but maybe you won't. Uh, don't you believe ultimately the result of sanctions on the enormous Russian population will have the desired effect and will prove to be a very effective weapon? Uh, yes. I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, I, I do think they will, they will prove effective. Although, you know, again, I'll, I'll add a couple of caveats to that. One is, you know, exactly how much we are unsure of, uh, and it's unclear how long that will take. I mean, you know, the example of sanctions that, you know, people point to most often, uh, as, as being effective is in the case of, you know, getting rid of apartheid in, in South Africa. And, and those sanctions took a very long time if you want to go and attribute, uh, attribute them to having been successful at changing, you know, changing the, the, the reality in that country. So, uh, you know, it's not clear to me that, the, that we will achieve the desired impact within a period of time that is, is what we want to. Um, the other thing I'll make, I, 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 the other point I'll make is that, um, you know, there is a, a bit of an assumption, I think, in your argument that 
um, you know, people will ultimately not stand for it like they may not have stood for certain actions that took place during the pandemic. But there's a very important difference between the Western world and, the, and, and, and Russia, and that's this issue of freedom. I mean, obviously within the United States, people have the ability to go and, and you know, either, uh, you know, vocalize these, uh, you know, this frustration, uh, whereas, of course, in Russia, they've basically shut down any independent media and alternate uh, viewpoints from the, the perspectives of, of you know the the well, ones that are being sanctioned by the by the state. Um, you have the ability to go and and protest. You have the ability to vote out elected officials, right? Whereas in Russia now, you do not have the ability to protest. You do not have the ability, you know, really to uh, to vote out Vladimir Putin. And so there's a um, you know to me that creates a much more challenging situation. And again, so you know the the argument can be well, even if sanctions are not as effective at targeting the leadership because of the pain that they will impose on the general populace, um, they won't be able to blame anyone else. But of course, what they will blame is the West because the West are the ones who are imposing the sanctions. And so, and that's exactly what we've seen from sort of the, uh, the Russian, you know, propaganda outfits that, that, uh, uh, you know, how they've been kind of messaging the, uh, you know, the, the actions so far by the West. So it's not clear to me uh, that, you know, the, if, if the ultimate outcome is that, you know, we, we want Putin to be out of power and that this is a way to go and get it to, to uh, get us to that point, uh, it's not clear to me at all that that will, that that will happen in the way that we want it to or in the timeline that we, uh, that, that we would want it to. And so, um, you know, again, on the margin, uh, I think it's absolutely it will it will have uh, have an impact and you know and I am personally supportive of of by and large the actions that that the U.S. and and the rest of the Western world has taken economically but those aren't without con- aren't without costs um, and that doesn't mean that the desired effects are going to happen uh, uh, you know in 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 a reasonable timeline. The headline of your article um, and of course the body. Uh, makes reference to, and this is an important thrust of your article, makes reference to the fact that sanctions, uh, headline, quote, will shake the world economy for years. Um, Take us, if you will, uh, and you're obviously speculating, but your opinion counts for an awful lot more than mine does because this is your area of expertise. Uh, Take us into post-sanction world um, because you worry about and you caution us that we will there will be long-term effects. What will be mm-hmm. the expected, you can't be certain, but expected long-term effects on the world economy uh, as a result of sanctions? Um, help us look into the future so we know what to be alert to when it happens. Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, I mean, to your point, I mean, obviously these are difficult things to predict. And if I uh, had that had that level of expertise, I probably would be uh, running my own hedge fund instead. But I think there are I think there are a couple of, of, of reasonable things that we can expect. I mean, one is, you know, the uncertainty within uh, energy markets. Um, you know, obviously, there are so many, uh, so many industries that are ultimately dependent on on affordable energy, and Russia provides, you know, a very significant amount of energy for, in particular, Europe. And so, even though they don't necessarily to the United States, um, as we talked about earlier, you know, these these are world markets where prices are set. Um, uh, you know, uh, in a, in a world marketplace, and so, um, so I, I think that there's there's the potential for uh, for higher uh, higher energy prices than we've had before, which of course, you know, will only flow through to the prices of other goods and services. Um, and you know, obviously, we've been we've been dealing with inflation for the last uh, you know six plus months now, or close to a year. Uh, and so this was a problem before the turmoil that we were seeing in Eastern Europe. Uh, and so I think that, you know, these actions could very well have, have, have real consequences, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the future, well beyond when, 
you know, whenever the, the, the sort of military or on the ground uh, uh, clashes end. And so to me, that's the, that's the most obvious thing. Um, the second is, is, you know, to piggyback off of a point that I made earlier, I mean, you know, you think about things like the efficacy of SWIFT or some of the ways in which the world uh, processes financial transactions or, you know, as you pointed out, you know, it perhaps can be described as the, the lubricant of the, the international financial order. Um, I think that there's an open question here as to as to whether or not it will be quite as robust as it was before, uh, or whether or not you might ultimately end up in a world with more factionalization and uh, and and you know and and you know decentralization, I guess if you want to call it that, which can be perfectly fine and doable. But there's obviously advantages to having standards and having uh, uh, you know the quick and inexpensive processing of uh, of of international transactions in a world that is is interconnected, and so. Um, so that's another potential, I think, potential casualty. Um, and beyond that, you know, there are just all sorts of other impacts that we haven't really thought about. I mean, for example, you know, Finland, which of course borders uh, Russia, you know, it's estimated that around a quarter of their of their companies do significant business um, with with. Uh, Russians, and so you know, of course, you might expect there to be even disproportionate uh, impacts on the economies in some of these areas that are, you know, even more tied to uh, to the Russian economy. I think you could you could see perhaps a decline in trade generally because of some of these actions that have taken place, which you know, again, carries a lot of you know, uh, I guess what Bastiat might have called the you know the, the hidden sort of uh, the hidden sort of costs in this context, where you know you don't necessarily know. Uh, uh, you know what those what those costs will be because those transactions never ultimately take place. So I think there's a lot of the you know generally speaking, there's a potential to have a little bit of you know a breakdown of the the smoothness with which the overall uh, international economy operates. And uh, you know as as we know, I mean uncertainty is is ultimately the worst thing that market participants uh, don't want to deal with. And so when you think about you know stock market growth or sort of the ability of of companies to be able to ultimately get get access to uh the capital that they want to invest and so forth um i think that to the degree that there's increased uncertainty on the national uh, in the international stage um that also has the potential to to you know in general retard uh worldwide growth and and uh and and put us ultimately uh you know at a worse off standard of living than we otherwise uh might have might have been over the course of the next uh, next decade or two I would uh, just mention in passing that sanctions are, of course, and this has been the subject of our conversation, sanctions are an economic weapon using trade and um, economics broadly have become the weapon of choice for the West to influence Russia's aberrant behavior. I would point out, just in case you have any thoughts on this, Jonathan, um, this is not part of the thrust of your article, but when the Cold War, where the adversaries were the West on the one hand and USSR on the other, when the Cold War was won, it was won economically. When Russia, the USSR, packed it in and said, we're done, and the USSR was then split up to some degree. That, from all that I have tried to learn, was driven by economics. Russia, the USSR, was bankrupt. It was like an international chapter 11, if you will, or maybe a chapter 7, a liquidation. And doesn't the experience in the Cold War show that wars, the Cold War, wars can be won economically with perhaps a short-term detriment on the rest of the world, but ultimately a long-term benefit. So we, this wasn't part of your article, but since you are an economist, I just thought I would toss that out in the few moments we have left to see if you have any thoughts about whether our victory, if we had a victory, in the Cold War proves 
the effectiveness of economic matters as a weapon. Yeah, it's it's a really great point, and I think that your assessment of the of the Cold War is accurate, right? If you if you look at the predictions of you know many academics or or you know experts of in Eastern Europe in the in the mid '80s, the vast majority of them did not believe that the Soviet Union was going to uh, was anywhere near a collapse. In fact, many of them believe that the Soviet Union was stronger than the United States was at that time. And so, uh, I think I think you're correct. Um, what I would add, however, is that you know, not all economic measures are the same. I mean, I don't think we won the Cold War, uh, you know, because of sort of our our adversarial economic, uh, uh, you know, relationship with the Soviet Union and with the Eastern Bloc any more than, you know, we've won in Cuba by having, you know, the Cuban embargo over this same period of time. To me, the, the, the way that we, that we won that, the Cold War economically was by basically outproducing and out-innovating uh, the, the command and control economies of, of the East. And so, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we were just able to produce uh, too much wealth, too much of what our citizens needed. I mean, there's that famous example of, you know, Boris Yeltsin coming to the United States and seeing all of the, the you know, the, the American supermarkets and, and what have you. Um, I think that it was largely through through that, through unleashing the creative potential of our educated workforce to engage and innovate economically in a way that the that the, the East could not ultimately compete with. And so to me that's the important lesson here is that we need to be thinking about the things that we can be doing to ensure that that you know Americans continue and, and, and the West continues to have the ability uh, to to innovate and and, and uh, produce in this in this way. But the lesson should not be that, you know, well, we need to go and, and you know, continually work to, uh, to retard trade or, um, or end up going and, and, you know, not engaging economically uh, as, as much as we possibly can, because, because ultimately that is how we, how we won the Cold War. It wasn't through sort of, you know, pulling ourselves away from the rest of the world. Jonathan, thank you so much for the piece you wrote in The Spectator, The Spectator being the oldest magazine in the world, 1828, I am told, is when it was founded. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for your article, Sanctions on Russia Will Shake the World Economy for Years, Um, but I will end with Shaken but not broken. We will survive. I think sanctions is Biden is timid, but basically getting it right. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time this Sunday morning. Keep up the great work at the R Street Institute. You bet. Thanks. Great conversation. I'll happily be back again next Sunday for another hour of opinion, not attitude. Thank you so much and enjoy your Sunday.